We, uh, we recruited, trained a number of uh, young people who, who understand authority, authority a little bit better and what it means to be a warrior for Christ. What kind of warrior? The kind of warrior that goes into a school and looks out for the kid who's being bullied, kills people with kindness, fights with weapons not of this world. We've got some compassionate, caring, trained young people who are accepting Christ, entering the waters of baptism, and looking for the alienated and disenfranchised young kid in the school that nobody seems to care about but us. We need more of that in this world, and I wanna thank all of you who provided the leadership for our VBS. And I know you were exhausted last week. I'm hoping this week you've got most of your strength back. Amen, because we only have like 349 days left to the next one. That's all we have. And for our globetrotters that were around the world, your granddaughter killed it. But signing autographs after the service is inappropriate. We'll deal with her on that. All right, this is, less, this is message 18 of 18 on firming up your faith, a firm foundation. And it's called sacramentally number two. We're going to talk about baptism today. We've already talked about Holy Communion as the first sacrament. This one as baptism, waters of baptism. And uh, we're going to put this into action right after the service. The service actually ends after the baptism. So I want to encourage you to go out there and join and encourage all of our candidates. Romans chapter 6, verse 1 through 3. Paul says this to a group of people he's never met. What shall we say then? Speaking of this incredible grace and forgiveness, he says, shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means, he says. We are those who have died to sin. Let me say that again. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. What beautiful words. Let's break it down. First sentence, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. You know, we come to the Lord and we, we, we recognize at various ages, as you'll see today, as a young boy, young girl, as a grown man or someone much older, that he is who we've been saying he is. He is Lord. We, we realize that and have that revelation at different times during the span of our life in different chapters and different contexts. And we accept him as such. We believe. We believe the good news. We've heard it in many different times, maybe we didn't believe it, but now eventually we hear it and we believe. The Bible speaks of more than believing, but not only believing, but standing in, standing upon, standing up for what you believe. To hold fast with what you believe so that it won't be snatched from you. I see this all too often, and it is a sad commentary to see someone come to Christ by belief, to not stand in, stand up for, and eventually, Galatians 6 of 1, someone just kind of snatches it from you, and it's as though the seed had fallen 
on rocky ground. It causes more pain than is necessary and makes it that much harder to re-engage in the body and the family of Christ. How stand-upable is your faith? It's a good question. How strong is your belief and what would it actually take to knock it over? Well, the answer to that question is probably not something you can articulate because you don't know. It's hypothetical. But what I can say is this. To the extent you have died, to the extent that you have died to self, your faith is strong. If your faith is rooted in yourself, your own ability, your own discipline. Discipline's a wonderful thing, friends. But it's, if it's just your discipline, it's not enough. If it's just your stick to if it's just your self-control apart from the fruit of the Spirit, it's not enough. In this world in which we live in, your faith will be sought after to be snatched from you. In many different ways this happens, and almost all of them are subtle to start with. Sneaky, subtle, and deceptive. How stand-upable is your faith? It's one thing to believe, it's another to have endurance with your faith. That's why we don't go on sinning in part. You see this on the sheet that you have this morning. Many people have thoughts and opinions, shall I say feelings about matters of faith when it comes to Christ. Not all stand up for their faith, And what's the deal with that anyway? Hey, listen, uh, if I say to you, moral relative, you believe what you want to believe, I'll believe what I want to believe. If that's your opinion, that's fine. You're entitled to your opinion. We do live in the United States of America. Your opinion is your opinion. My opinion is mine. I'm going to do what I want to do. This is how I see God. You see God any way you want to see it. Let me tell you something. We're not... We're not talking about some shifting shadow definition of God. We're talking about one who died on a cross with historic factual documentation from those who were for him and those who were against him that he did die in this place. He was buried. He did fulfill over 200 messianic prophecies over a span of thousands of years and he ever liveth to make intercession for us even today. I don't care what your feelings are about Christ. I care that you know that he factually existed. He's historical, not hysterical. Feelings are great. They're they're wonderful. You can use them all you want and share your opinions with pundits can share their opinions. I want the facts, Jack. I want to know that belief in that God that you have has radically changed your life. I want to know that his spirit bears witness with your spirit. I want to know that it's not based on some mood you were in one day in church. I want something that's stand-upable, stand-and-doable. I want something that has some rigidity to it and can withstand storms and doubt and deception and mockery and, I, I dare say, better get ready for it, persecution. So we believe, and we believe also on facts, not fantasy. 
History provides facts that many see as fantasy or opportunities for relativism, but we have the word of our testimony. It goes on to say, we are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? This is so key. And I would say this is the one thing that most people in the church today don't get. I don't know where, you, what, I don't know where you're visiting from. I hope that wherever it is you came from, you have a church family, and I hope you understand this concept. If you don't, go back and teach it to your pastor because this is key, biblical truth. Coming to Christ for new life necessitates a death. Let me say say it again. If you want to come to Christ and have the new resurrected life of Christ alive in you, tabernacling with you and changing the way you see, feel, understand God, others, your mission in life, his life is great, but there has to be a death. He already died so that he could have resurrection power. As our representative, we in fact have to die too. This is the thing we miss. We just want to add Christ on to what our program and agenda already is. And now he'll go with us, us fully who we've always been. No, no, we need to have a funeral. We need to have a funeral in this place today. We're going to have one out here in the baptismal pool. But we need to have one here in the pew. What part of you, and I'm not kidding, what part of you today do we need to mourn the loss of? What attitude has to die? What, what perspective has to, just has to, wither away? What, what in you needs to be starved? I'm gonna tell you guys, like I t- always tell you, every time I come and see you, a dead man has no compulsions whatsoever. A dead man is not tempted in any way, shape, or form. A dead man doesn't sin. Who who has something in you that is entangled, easily entangled at times, that's been with you a long time? What half-dead part of a spiritual carcass are you schlepping along with yourself that needs to be put to rest? We have to die to self. We have to. Dead men don't bicker. They don't raise up and be selfish either. And they don't lay around with no aim and purpose in life. They're dead. They're no threat to us anymore. We need to have us a mercy killing in this place tonight. By God's mercy, something in us dies. That's taking up space, frankly. It's taking up space, it's taking up time, it's taking up resources. Where God would inhabit that space, fill that time, and give you creativity of something new and fresh and resurrected. That's the difference. In the biblical times, they understood death, dying to self and coming alive again in Christ, going under the water and coming back up, meant just that. Some of us came in here today and you've accepted Christ. 
But you're, you're no different, and I've been here. You're no different than just having had your last meal. The guards have come to get you, and you're headed for the chair, the electric chair, and you're just a dead man walking. We need to put that dead man in us to bed and get rid of him, get him out of our life so that we can freely be who we've been called to be. That's baptism. That's baptism. It's not a ceremony. It's not simply a ritual. It's a burial. Six foot under, never to be harmed by your own self again. Dead to this world. So key. Well, if we're struggling with sin, it's the part of us that's still alive that's supposed to be dead. Sin really shouldn't be an issue for us if we've died to our own sin nature. Dead can be good. And then he says, or, or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? If you, look, if you stand back and look at this and really think about it and really observe all the historic accounts of Jesus' crucifixion from four different perspectives, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and from Josephus, other historians, Eusebius, Plinus the Younger, when, when, when you really look at it, and all the information that we're given, all the preemptive information that says what it's going to be like, that goes back to Isaiah and, and even further, all of that, you put it all together and you look at it and you reason it, you come up with this. There was a lot of information, maybe too much information, an abundance of data that Christ was actually dead. Why? I mean, the actual way he died. When in the context of history did he die? And by what method did he die? And how did they, uh, how did they torture him? And how, how did they arrest him? And how did they, where did they put him? In a borrowed tomb? And how did they prepare his body with spices? And then they put a rock over it. Then they put guards in front of it. Any and everybody who really reads the account understands a great lengths were taken to prove they stuck a spear in his side and water came out of the pericardial uh, cavity of his heart and blood flowed out. Any and every detail we need to know that this man was dead. Because once you prove he's dead, now you can have a resurrection. Now you can talk about a resurrection. You don't talk about a resurrection if there was any doubt if the guy was died. Well, maybe he walked off or maybe he slinked into the night. Maybe they left him on the cross and someone took him down. Maybe he went to a hospital. Maybe he went to an urgent care. Come on. He's dead. He's just plain dead. Death is an obvious prerequisite to resurrection. The Roman government executed him by way of crucifixion. It's where we get the word excruciating. It is synonymous with pain and torture. The Romans didn't invent crucifixion. They sure did perfect it, though. Man, did they have it down. A slow, agonizing, horrible death. 
exacting maximum pain and maximum suffering. No other time in history would this elongated torture have taken place but for when God, in the fullness of time, Galatians 4 and 4, sent his son into this world to die. During this time, during crucifixion. After the scourging and the opening of his back and the clotting of his blood and the meshing with his uh, reintroduction to fabric and clothing, then torn off and reopened again for his back to constantly be moving up the beam of a cross, only to put nails into his wrist uh, in the crossbeam, severing the <laughs> severing the median nerve, severing the median nerve in both arms, which basically results in bolts of torrid pain rushing through each extremity at varying times, sometimes simultaneous, sometimes staggered, but constant, continuous. Just the arms themselves. I have a friend who has post-adult onset polio. He says, Gary, I don't tell people much this very often, but sometimes every nerve in my body is on fire. I don't know anybody who's gone through more pain than my friend. This is such pain. Excruciating, firing bolts of pain in both arms, leaving a claw-like grip with your extremities and your feet and your toes for the lack of oxygen. Because of hyper, trying to hyperventilate at best to get oxygen into your system. Hindering your breathing, your inhalation, your exhalation, and muscle cramps. Weight distributed upon feet who have the same searing pain that the arms do. Trying to push up best you can, having to move your elbows and allow room to accommodate the expansion of the lungs, and moving the nails into your wrist yet again down the medial nerve that's been severed. All of that time, and, time, and that's one breath. That's one breath. How many breaths that afternoon? How many repeated cycles of thundering, bolting pain? debilitating, claw-like epoxia. What, 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 what more is there that you can do to someone? Insects would light upon the burrow and into the open wounds or eyes and ears as the day progressed. Even the nose of the dying and helpless victim. Even birds of prey would tear at these sights. Save your pity though, not for him. Save your pity. We're gonna need it. We're gonna need that very pity for those who don't accept him. For those who reject him. I got news for you, you're either for him or you're against him. There's no middle ground here. You're for him or you're against him. Save your pity for them. They're going to need it. After the spear, the borrowed tomb, at some point before he died, before his last breath, before, somewhere before it is finished, somewhere after the veil was open, somewhere in there, just in that area, a spiritual transaction took place, uh, an exchange. Here, you take forsakenness in your pain and the sin of the world, and I'll... I'll withdraw redemption for mankind. Somewhere in there, 
somewhere around the time in his pain, he said, forgive them, Father, they know not what they do. Somewhere in there. That's sacred transaction. Totally satisfying the wrath and judgment of God against the sin of the world. We, and Paul goes on to say, we were therefore buried with him through baptism into death. Say what? Death precedes resurrection and new life. Have you and are you dying to self? Did you, did you enter into a relationship with Christ to accept him but forgot the other part of it where you relinquished the lordship of your own life and you lay your body bare before him and say, I, I need to die to myself. My own gluttony and my own sin. You know, that part where you, what is it? I don't know, some people are really into this. Confession of sin and repentance. Here's the thing. To the extent we die to self determines whether we are competing against ourselves in the process of sanctification. Sanctification is the growing in holiness and the, the uh, overcoming and maturing in life, overcoming the sin nature and the infancy in, that we have when we come to Christ. Sanctification is an incredibly important process, a very easy one, or much easier, I should say, should we have died to self before we get too far into it. But I would say we compete against ourselves in some areas of our life where we actually harm ourselves. We get in our own way because we have yet to die in that one area. We fight like all we have to fight to keep that one area of sin in our life, we protect it, we guard it, we put soldiers around it that God could never get to it. We deny it exists, we do it in secret, we do this, we do that. We, we think, we rationalize, we romanticize, we excuse, but it's there. And it's as fully alive as it's ever been. And he says in the next chapter, realizing that Paul himself had a not yet dead wasp nest down in his crawl space of his soul says this. I just don't do what I want to do and that which I don't want I do. Wretched man that I am. Would somebody kill that part of me please? That's baptism. John 12 and 24, very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, if that outer part dies, it produces many seeds. God gives us an invitation. Before baptism, after baptism, every day, to die to self, to our selfish ambitions and to our own fears and phobias and our own attitudes and our own disgusting behavior at times, our own patterns that we get into. Thank God we don't have to overcome them, we just have to kill them. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may have a new life. You never took quantum physics in your freshman year there were always prerequisites. I don't know, math one.
we have a son who's basically um, bona fide genius, Mensa. At nine years old, they were driving down the road, and he goes, what do you think about the fourth dimension? I said, well, I don't mean to be rude, but it's the fifth dimension. I thought he was talking about a band. Anyway, there are prerequisites. If you've plateaued in your walk, listen to me now because I'm talking to you. More importantly, the Lord's talking to you right now. Listen to this. If you've plateaued and your spiritual walk is on an elongated butte, flat-lined butte sticking up out of the desert and you can't seem to elevate Ask yourself the question, as long as you came over here all this way, Lord, is there something in me that needs to die? What needs to die? What are you white knuckling? What's been brought in the past to the present all too often? Are you living back there? forsaking the present moment and your future? Listen to what comes out of your mouth. Is it just a repeat or a rephrasing of everything else you always seem to say? Put that man, that old woman to rest. Live in the present moment. Press on toward the goal to win the prize to which you've been called heavenward in Christ Jesus. All things old of passed away. Let me say that again. All things old have passed away. Not, not just the passing of time. They're dead. They passed away. They're dead. We buried them. Don't go dig them up again. That's your past. Guys, listen. That's your past. It may be uh, uh, accentuated right now because you ain't got a whole lot of future, uh, you know, but hey, that's your past. That doesn't define you. That doesn't, that doesn't say who you are. It doesn't give you any kind of identity. It's nothing really to be proud of. You can share a testimony, but don't make it a trophy. Don't glorify it. It's dead. It needs to be dead, dry bones thrown out to the spiritual landfill, never to remind you again of who you've been, but let the Spirit of God pull you into who he wants you to be. It died. And your addiction died with it. Dead. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. I've been looking at things here lately. I've taught a couple healing classes. I'm gonna teach another one. It's true the teacher learns more than the student. I don't, I don't argue that at, at all. I've learned a little bit about healing this past year. I've seen people healed this past year. I make the connection between those two realities. I know that some came to Christ just begging on another's behalf. I mean begging. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. That means beggarly. I mean, some were healed because they, someone loved them begged. 
The Syrophoenician woman said, I, not only am I going to beg you, I'm going to do it persistently. I'm, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm begging you, and I'm begging you, and I don't even have a right to beg you. I'm a Canaanite woman. I'll take the scraps under the table. That's begging. Others had great faith, super faith. And Jesus said, you're healed because of your faith. Others said, oh, Lord, help me in my unbelief. And he got them squared away. Somebody, some people knew his name, knew who he was. Some believed in him. Some had no idea who he was. No more than a stranger passing on the sidewalk. But there is one, the one consistent thing, the, the two, excuse me, the two consistent things in the ministry of Jesus towards those who were blind, deaf, lame, paralyzed, demon-possessed, or anything else. Number one, compassion. He just flat out cared. And number two, upward movement, upward movement. He didn't do anything apart from upward movement, upward movement. Even in the Old Testament, Elisha lays over the three-day-old dead body of the Shunammite woman's son in a borrowed tomb, sorry, room. Eyes to eyes, mouth to mouth, hands to hands, sneezed. Yeah. Upward came the boy. Upward. The widow Nain, he touched the, the casket. Upward came the boy. Uh, Talitha Kum, I say to you, little girl, grabs her hand, get up. Upward movement. Everything's upward. Lazarus had to get up and put your clothes on. Let's do this now. But Lord, you are the shield around me, my glory, and the lifter of my head. The upward movement. Death has nothing but sedentary, stationary, going nowhere, no good to anybody. But new resurrecting life, once you've died to self, is all upward movement. I lift up my eyes to the hill from where my help comes from. Upward movement. Lift up your head, your redemption draws nigh. Upward movement. He's about upward. Come up here and behold, I'll show you a door that's open and I'll show you what must take place after this. Into the throne. Upward movement. If there's a dead part of your life it's causing you horizontal movement, if any, or downward trajectory. Christ in new life is about resurrection power. We're gonna put some people in the water today and they're gonna come up out of the death. Out of it. Pick up your mat and walk. Get up. I am the resurrection, he says, John 11 and 25. And God raised our Lord and will also raise up by his power. Lift up your countenance. Anything in your life that's causing you to bow your head in shame, to look inward for answers, needs to die. It needs to die. Any attitude that you have towards someone, any judgment, any continuing uh, animosity, any lack of forgiveness, any lack of grace, no dispense, dispensation of mercy, that needs to die. Once it dies, you'll have upward movement, upward movement. Get your thinking up, get your attitude up, get your speech up. Upward movement. But death is the prerequisite, my friend. You guys got nowhere to go but up. You're going to come up out of the ashes. You're going to minister to your family. God's going to provide for your family in your absence. You're going upward, upward and onward, upward and onward. That's what it's all about. But you got to die. You got to die. 
And if you don't die totally, you only go up so far. More death will get you higher and higher and higher and it'll bring you more and more humility. Are you down today? Something has to die. Are you, do you like gratitude today? Something has to die. We need a funeral. Consider spiritual death. I'll tell you what may have to die is our individual misunderstanding of the idea that we need death to self. If we don't understand that, that misunderstanding needs to die. I'm sharing with you what is necessary for you to live upward lives, influential lives, spiritually potent, satisfying, mission-oriented, fulfilled, joyous lives, lives of liberty and freedom, death first, prerequisite, math one. If you, in here today, in all honesty, when you think about it, you may not mean it, but you're at the epicenter of the entire creation. God even revolves around your needs. That has to die. That has to go. Wither that thing out. How do you bring about spiritual death? And how do you, how do you die to self? First word. Repent. It's, it's the first word. It's, it's not up for negotiation. I repent. I'm, I'm turning away. I'm not going to let my past define my present and future. I'm turning away from that. I'm heading in a different direction. Number two, renounce it. Renounce it. Number three, this is going to be scary for some of us. Relinquish control of it. Your control over your past, present, and future, frankly, is an illusion. You don't control anything. You don't want to control anything. You want to rest in the loving arms of Christ and let him orchestrate things around you. Re repent, renounce, relinquish, and live forward, not in the past. Cheer on death, ask for death. No one does this. Be willingness, have a willingness to die to self. Pick up your cross daily, deny yourself, and follow Christ. I'm gonna make available something to you that I've never done before in 25 plus years of ministry. We're gonna baptize a few people next week as well, but we're also gonna have a mikvah. What is a mikvah, you say? It's a Jewish ceremonial ritual for people who have already been baptized. It's between you and the Lord. It's not that your sins aren't forgiven. It's not that you're not saved, it's not about that. Between you and him. It's something between you and him that you talked this week about with him that says this, cleanse me. Debridement. That's what it is. It's debridement. It is the clearing away of dead tissue that's weighing you down. It's letting go and relinquishing control over certain parts of your life. I'll, I'll put you under the water for that reason alone, between you and him. I'll pray over you. I'll pray the paint off the walls if you want. But between you and him, you go under that water and you come up more aware, more sensitive, 
more, more alive than you've been in a long time. It's your way of saying, I let go of these parts of my life that are becoming lords to me. Lords to me. It's a mikvah. I got an illustration, then we're gonna end. If our musicians would come up, please. This illustration is so old. I didn't say I was old. I said the illustration was old. Did I have to explain it? Now listen, I haven't bought pantyhose in, in weeks. <laughs> but they used to come, from what I understand, in an egg. Remember those? How many of you remember that? It's called legs. How many men remember that? That's concerning. Thank you. I noticed fewer hands went up that time. But anyway, they used to sell pantyhose in like a Revco or CVS, and they came in these eggs, and these eggs were about, I don't know, smaller than a softball, but they were eggs. And you opened them up, and... Is that true, ladies? Yeah, okay, thank you. Okay, now I can tell my story. Thank you. This is a significant story to me because, well, you don't need to know, but it is significant because of some prayer that we've had today for the service. Um, little Philip uh, was born uh, in a way that he saw things and processed things differently different than other children. Philip was born Down syndrome. And he attended a third grade Sunday school class with uh, several eight-year-old boys and girls. Typical of that age, the children did not readily accept Philip with uh, his differences. Uh, but, but because of his creative teacher, they began to care about Philip and accept him as part of the group, though not fully, not fully. The Sunday after Easter, the teacher brought legs pantyhose containers into class, the kind that looked like large eggs. Each receiving one, the children were told to go outside on that lovely spring day and find some symbol out in nature, some symbol that they could put inside their egg, a symbol of new life, put it in the, in the egg-like container and bring it back to the classroom. They're gonna look at them all together. And they would share their new life symbols, opening the containers one by one in surprise fashion. After running about the church property in wild confusion, the students returned to the classroom and placed the containers on the table. Surrounded by the children, the teacher began to open them one by one. After each one, whether it was a flower or some a butterfly or a leaf, the class would collectively like ooh and ah. Then one was open, revealing nothing inside. Nothing. It's empty. And uh, the children exclaimed, well, that's, that's stupid. Somebody didn't do their assignment. That's not fair. Somebody just didn't do their assignment. But Philip spoke up. He spoke up on his own behalf, and he said, that one's mine. One student said, Philip, you, you didn't do it right. There's nothing in there. Philip said, I did so. 
I did do it right. It's empty. The tomb was empty. Silence followed. From then on, Philip became a full member of the class. He died not long afterward from an infection most normal children would have shrugged off, and at the funeral, this class of eight-year-olds marched up to the altar, not with flowers, but with their Sunday school teacher, each laying on Philip an empty pantyhose egg. Death precedes resurrection. Resurrection is where the action is. It's the vitality, the passion, the joy, the frivolity, the liberty and freedom of our faith. It's the good part. It has a prerequisite. For Jesus, it was death on the cross. For you and I, it's an open willingness to die to self, to be raised up to new life. Join me, will you please, as the service continues, after you're done here, to celebrate these people entering the waters of baptism, embracing best they can right now, the willingness to die to self and selfishness, that they may be raised up into new life for the glory of God. Do some business with the Lord this week. If anything is said here this morning sort of resonates with you, maybe even pricks your heart, do you need a mikvah? Do you need a measurable fresh start? You need a statement that you make to God to re-engage post-mortem some area of your life. Ponder these things in your heart. I'll see you outside and we'll celebrate together.